Good morning, everyone, and praise the Lord. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in the, in the saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true, the woman said to him. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem, is a place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here 
when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. You, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Praise God. Are you a true worshiper of God? That's, that's the question and the story of the woman at the well. Um, and, and it's a question that's at first seems like it may be very easy to answer because we just, we just worshiped, right? So, yeah, I sang. I'm a worshiper. Um, but, that, but in this, this story, the word worship has a very different meaning. Um, there, there's a lot that happens in this story. I've heard this story taught a whole bunch of different ways as well. And, and today, I'm hoping that by the end of today, you will be trying hard to answer the question, am I a true worshiper of God? And when we say the word worship, 
um, in, in this story, the, the way the word worship is being used is very specific. What, what Jesus and the woman are talking about when they, they use this word, it's the idea of, and, and when Jesus says they must worship in spirit and truth, it's the idea of wholehearted obedience. It's the idea of your words, thoughts, actions, motives, every part of you worshiping the Lord. And, and so we're going to look deeply at that and try and answer this question. Am I a true worshiper of God? Are, are you a true worshiper of God? And I'm, I'm very excited. I love this story so much. I love the values we see from Jesus, and I, I love the way he flips so many things upside down in this story. So let's open up with prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. We, we thank you for sending your Son, for the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us. We thank you that when he came, um, he spoke to the religious leaders, to those who were in authority, to kings. To, he, he spoke to the rich and to the poor alike. He spoke to sinners and those who thought they were saints. And to everyone he talked to, he invited them to join his kingdom and, and to just see that he was the truth. And Lord, I pray as we come together right now, as we look at your word, I pray your spirit would be moving. I pray that you would be speaking through me, um, that it would be your words, not mine. And I pray that you would give us all ears to hear what you have to say in your word. And Lord, I pray that if there are those here who think that they are true worshipers of you, but by the end of the story realize they are not, I, I pray that they would respond by worshiping you and, and by becoming true worshipers of you. I, I pray that no one would leave today without knowing how to answer that question. We thank you that you are so good and so loving and so kind and that you are the Savior of the world. It's in your name we pray. Amen. At the start of this story, we see that Jesus has learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. And so when Jesus hears that the Pharisees have heard this, he departs from Judea and heads for Galilee. And there's a whole lot going on here, but I, I can summarize it in early on in the ministry of Jesus. Um, the Pharisees already did not like John the Baptist, and Jesus is going more radical than what John the Baptist was. And so the Pharisees do not like Jesus. And early on in the ministry of Jesus, in the book of John, up until the story of Lazarus, the, the picture of Jesus that we see is whenever the people try to kill him or confront him, or whenever the people try to make him king, because there's those two schools of thought and how people respond to him, Jesus' response is he just kind of moves on or kind of backs away. He, he's not ready yet to, to go to what ultimately will lead to the cross. And, and so in this story, when the Pharisees start to hear of this, Jesus says, you know what, it's time to move on. And he takes his disciples with him. And, and this is the 12. And, and you notice here what they were doing. Jesus was making disciples, but it was his disciples who were doing the work of baptizing them. They are part of the labor that Jesus is doing. And so Jesus, it says he had to pass through Samaria. What's interesting that had to uh, he had, uh, there, there's this idea behind that word of it was necessary. Um, and there's a weird way that this word can be used. It's kind of hard to interpret because it doesn't tell us God told him to. But when we read he had to, there's almost an idea of a, a Jesus, who is a true worshiper of God in action, thought, and deed throughout his whole ministry. There's an idea that in this moment he had to, it was necessary for him to do this. And, and they traveled quickly. It says, so, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, 
was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There's a little bit of language here that suggests the idea that Jesus and his disciples are in a hurry to get there because Jesus had to be there by the sixth hour. And this well that he's at is a very historic well. So there's Abraham, in, in, the, in Genesis 12, God makes a promise to Abraham that, that through him all nations would be blessed and he would have a multitude of children, even though he was old and at that point did not have any children. And, and, and then he makes another promise to Isaac, who be Abraham's son. Um, and then he makes a promise to Jacob. And so Jacob has 12 sons that are the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and so this well is steeped in history for Jews and Samaritans. We're going to look at Samaritans in a moment. But, but so they come to this well, and it's about the sixth hour, and Jesus is sitting there. The sixth hour would have been about the middle of the day. Um, they started their hours kind of when they woke up, so it'd be around noon. It'd be at a warm part of the day. It'd be a time when you would not expect anyone to come to a well, because why on earth would you go to the well in the middle of the day? It's hot. And they don't have running water, so if they're coming to the well, they've got to bring a big old water jug and fill it up. So being practical, you'd go early in the morning or in the cool of the evening. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. This should be odd to us once we know what time of day it is. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, it's interesting here, the Samaritan woman, um, she knows that there's something wrong with this picture. Um, she says, the Samaritan, woman sa the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now there is a whole lot here, and it's, we're going to do our best to unpack it today. The, the very first thing is that if we've been reading John 1 through 3, we know that Jesus is regarded as a teacher or a rabbi. And in their day, a, a Jewish rabbi would not talk to a woman in public, never mind the Samaritan part. They would not talk to their own daughter in public, never mind the Samaritan part. There, there were cultural things here. Um, this is not to say, like, men don't leave here today, say, I will not talk to my daughter in public ever again. But, but in their culture, this was an unusual thing for a Jewish man to talk to a woman of Samaria at all. And when we know that Jesus is a teacher, he's breaching so many social customs. When he says, give me a drink, what's even more crazy, the, the reason that Jews and Samaritans get, didn't get along, the, the, the Jews, inside of that reason, the Jews said that the Samaritans from birth were unclean, were ritually unclean. And the idea, when it says Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, the, the language behind that is hard to translate without more context. But what the no dealings means is that if a Samaritan touched a fork, a Jewish person would never touch that fork. If a Samaritan had a cup that they lowered in the, in the well and raised it, a Jewish person would just never drink from that vessel. And Jesus says, give me a drink. And the woman wonders, how is it that you would ask me for a drink, you Jewish man? She does not know yet anything about him except he's a Jewish man that is breaching protocol. Now we're going to take a moment and talk about what the Samaritans believed and Jews believed because as we go forward in this story, it's going to be very important. So the Samaritans and Jews both come from Abraham. And, and they both are okay with the books Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Old Testament. But the Samaritan says it stops there. They, they said after Moses, there's no more prophets until the prophet Moses predicted would come. 
Moses in Deuteronomy predicts that Jesus will come, and he says there will be a prophet like me, but unlike me. He, he points forward to Jesus. And the Samaritans say the next time a prophet comes, it's going to be the Messiah. They have a different word for Messiah, but they mean the Messiah. The, the Samaritans believe that lineage is important through Jacob, because it's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then the sons of Jacob begin the tribes. They, they think it stops there. The, the Jews who believe in the whole Old Testament, because they believe in the whole te- Old Testament, they believe that the covenant God made with David was very important. When, David, when God said to David, there will be someone from your line that will be from my line that will reign forever. The same Messiah that Moses pointed to. Now the Samaritans, because they just looked at Genesis through Deuteronomy, they believe that you should worship at this mountain called Mount Gerizim, which is the mountain that Sychar is at the base of, right next to Jacob's well. This is a super logical place for them to think because at the end of Deuteronomy, um, we actually, when, we, when I preached on Joshua 8, um, the Battle of Jericho and the next couple battles, the end of that story is them worshiping on Mount Gerizim because Moses said, when you enter the promised land, that's where you're going to worship. And so if you stop at Deuteronomy, you should absolutely worship at Mount Gerizim. But if you, if you follow the Jewish beliefs of the whole Old Testament, well, of course you have to do it at Jerusalem because of all the things that happened in Joshua through Malachi. You, you have to land in Jerusalem if that's true. And finally, the Jews believed in all the prophets. Obviously, if they believe past Deuteronomy, they believe that there's been this whole line of prophets pointing to the Christ, where, as the Samaritans believed, Moses was the last prophet. Until the Christ. And so if you, if you think logically here, the, the thing that you have to come away with is if one, of, if one of these groups is right, the other's at least very incomplete, if not outright heretical. Adding to this difference of religious belief was the fact that the Samaritans, um, and you can trace this through the Bible, they, they were very willing to intermarry with other people. There are times where they worship tons of other gods. There's reason to believe, and there's suggestions that by the time of Jesus, they were trying to follow pretty well the, the Genesis through Deuteronomy. And, and so that, that's where we kind of land with the Samaritans. And, and so the Jews and Samaritans hated each other. The Jews thought the Samaritans were so much less than them, and they would not even talk to them, not even touch them. There, there was just a complete distance between them. And a Samaritan woman walks up, and Jesus says, give me a drink. When she says, uh, why are you asking me? Jesus responds, if you knew the gift of God, and who it was that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus' response when she says, why are you asking me, is, why aren't you asking me? If you knew who I was, you'd ask me for living water. The woman responds to him. She's very practical. Um, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Tied into this, I think, is the idea of you just asked me for a drink, and now you're telling me you have something for me to drink. That's kind of weird. She goes on. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons, and his livestock. For a Jew and a Samaritan, the idea of are you greater than Jacob would have been like a bit of a tension point. And Jesus, in his response, he says, everyone who drinks this well, this water, will be thirsty again. And the idea of everyone there is not just everyone currently, but it it ties into it the idea, I think, of all who have drank from this well. Jacob, who drank from this well, had to keep drinking. 
his sons had to keep drinking. Even their livestock had to keep drinking. Jesus is not quite saying, yes, I am greater than Jacob, but at the same time, he's absolutely saying, I'm greater than Jacob. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So now Jesus describes this living water and says that this water, once I give it to them, it will well up. The idea is it will leap from them and become eternal life. The woman, ever practical, responds to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now at this point we need to pause and remember what time of day it was. It's noon. It's odd that she's drawing water at noon. And so when he tells her there is water that will make it so you don't have to come here and draw water again, or there's water that you'll never be thirsty again, her first thought is, I wouldn't even have to come here in the middle of the day. So she asks for it, and Jesus responds, Go, call your husband and come here. She responds, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. He affirms her, You're correct. But he goes on, For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, when we come to this point, um, I have heard the woman at the well story taught so many times about this was a woman who's kind of flirty, she's promiscuous, she's kind of hitting on Jesus. It's like I went from man to man to man. Um, But if we take into account the fact that the Samaritans believed in Genesis through Deuteronomy, a woman in adultery would not be picked up by man after man in their culture. And from what we see later on, I I don't think we can say this woman was flirting. Um, If you've ever heard it taught that way, I don't know, some commentaries talk about it. I'm very against it, and so I'm going to put that opinion out there. Because what I think when I read this, when I think you've had five husbands, what's tied to that? If you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, in, in ancient cultures, if a man had a wife and decided that he wanted a new wife, what did he do? He took a new wife, and the old wife was just cast aside. But if that old wife tried to remarry, that man would say, uh-uh, that's still my property. And so in the book of Deuteronomy, something changes. Because when God lays out his vision for the people of Israel, he says, if you're going to divorce a woman, you have to give her a certificate of divorce, which says she can remarry. She's not, I, I don't own her, she can remarry. And that to us in modern times sounds like, oh, that's kind of weird. But in their culture, that was a radical step towards the rights of women. And what we learn, even if you go to the book of Matthew, we learn that Jesus said, you you know, like Moses said, you can divorce, but it was because you were so stubborn and unwilling not to divorce. God's plan was not for divorce in the first place. But but, so in this story, you have had five husbands, assuming that this town, which is near the mountain where they worship, is, is trying to follow Genesis through Deuteronomy, which I think there's a lot of indicators they are. That means that five times in her life, A man has handed her a piece of paper and said, you can't live here anymore. I'm casting you aside. You you have no value to me. You're gone. Five times that has happened to the point of the man that she is currently with. The man that she is currently with is like, I don't even respect you enough to give you that right. He won't even marry her. And in a culture where women were very marginalized already, 
she had to find companions. She had to find something where she could, and, and this is what she eventually turned to, was living with a man in an adulterous relationship because she had nothing else. And she's living in a town where five women that every morning go to get water are married to her former husbands. So she says, I'll wait. It might be hot later on, but at, at least I'll avoid all those looks and all those conversations. At least I'll avoid feeling as worthless as I feel in front of other people. And so Jesus, when he talks to her, he brings that out. And he affirms her in it, but in a way that's really hard to understand. But, but Jesus tells her, you're right. He knows her to her core. You want living water so you don't have to do this again. Why do you not want to have to come here for water again? Because of how you have been regarded by the town. And so Jesus just says, you are right. What you have said is true. At this point, the woman responds, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, students, um, I have to repent for a moment. If you are a high school student, I have taught on this passage and talked about how at this moment, the woman changes the subject. You're talking about my husband's, hey, are you a prophet? That's how I've always read it. It's wrong. It's absolutely wrong, and I've said it this way wrong, and so I'm repenting right now before all of you. Um, because you know why? If she's a Samaritan, there has only been one real prophet, Moses. And if she's a Samaritan and she's suggesting, I perceive you are a prophet, she is one step away from saying, you are the Messiah. Do you see? She's not saying here, man, you're just another prophet. I want to change the subject. Because what she is saying here, she is laying herself bare before him. Just like she's not quite ready to say you are, but I perceive you are. And you're in Samaria at noon talking to me, a Samaritan woman. I'm confused right now. So what does she say? She says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And what's interesting, that word ought there is the same exact word from before when it says Jesus had to because it's necessary for Jesus to do this. And now she says, does God find it necessary for us to worship in Jerusalem or in the mountain that is right in front of us right now, Mount Gerizim? Because I think that you might be the Messiah. And if you're the Messiah, you're appearing right here at the foot of this mountain. Does this mean that we, the Samaritans, have it right? And Jesus responds to her, woman, believe me. And, and, and that woman there, woman, woman, believe me. The hour is coming, the time is coming, the moment is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. That time is coming. You, and this you is a plural, it's you, the Samaritans. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. We, the Jews, worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Now, Jesus' answer to her question is, yeah, Samaritans, you're wrong. You're incomplete. But the hour is coming when that's not going to matter anymore. In fact, it's not just the hour is coming. The hour is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The Father is seeking. He's looking for people that will worship him in spirit and truth. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And that word must right there. That word must is the same exact word in Greek as he had to. 
and as where should we worship? Ought we worship here or ought we worship there? The way to worship God, the way that we must worship him, if we want to worship him, is in spirit and truth. And what does that mean? Well, first off, spirit in this passage, I think, has a simple explanation. You're talking about a mountain. You're talking about a temple. God is spirit. Is he relegated to those places? No, God is everywhere. That's the Jewish belief from the Old Testament. The, the wind, the ruach, it's the breath of God. God is everywhere. He's not just in a temple. He's not just on a mountain. He's everywhere. So worshiping God in spirit means that the, your worship of God is not about where you worship, but it's about worshiping. Does that make sense? Because God is everywhere. So worship God everywhere. Really simple. And the truth part of this, the truth part of this is tied to words, actions, motives, thoughts. It's, it's the idea of I worship God wholeheartedly wherever I am. It's the idea of genuine worship. God loves me so much that I'm going to show others in the way that I live how much God loves me. And I'm not going to do this so God loves me more because he loves me perfectly, but I'm going to do this so others know how much God loves me and how much he loves them. It is a genuine way of living for God. A true worshiper is someone who, wherever they are, lives with their words, thoughts, actions, motive, truly for God. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. John adds in parentheses, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us, the Samaritan people, all of us, all these things. Again, she doesn't quite ask a question. I perceive you're a prophet. Here's a statement. The Messiah, she, she doesn't quite say you are the Messiah. But this statement comes out of nowhere. And, and church, we're going to stop for a moment. Last week, we, we looked at Nicodemus. When did, when did Nicodemus come to Jesus? In the dead of night. Nicodemus is an esteemed, respected religious leader in the dead of night. This Samaritan woman finds herself walking upon Jesus at a well in the middle of the day. There's a contrast here. We don't want to miss it. Nicodemus asks him theological questions. He challenges Nicodemus, and Nicodemus leaves at the end of the story. We, we don't really know how Nicodemus responds, but he never says, are you the Messiah? But this Samaritan woman, this lowest of the low in their society, puts voice to, I know that the Messiah will explain all these things. And what she's saying is, you're explaining all these things. I think you're a prophet. And Jesus responds to her, I who speak to you am he. And that is the clunkiest, silliest sentence in the world. But what Jesus is saying is, you're talking to I am. And the word I am is going to show up seven times seven, or seven times plus another seven times in the book of John. And Jesus is declaring, I am. In the Old Testament, Moses says, who shall I say is sending me? And he says, I am who I am. This idea, the, the word behind it is ego eimi in Greek. It's two words. It's ego eimi. It's I am. Am. And what Jesus is declaring here is he is declaring that he is the Messiah using language that only the Messiah would dare use. And the woman hears him say this. He declares to a Samaritan woman this. And the story is not over because just then, at that moment, just then, as Jesus says, I am, that's the idea, just then, his disciples come back. And they marvel, they're shocked that he is talking with a woman. Now, note, it doesn't say that he was talking with a Samaritan woman. Because right away they see him talking to a woman, and he, before we even talk about the Samaritan part, it's weird that Jesus, our teacher, our rabbi, is talking to a woman at all, let alone a Samaritan. 
But they don't ask her, what do you seek? And they don't ask him, why are you talking to her? They don't ask anything. They just kind of stay to the side and go, huh. But they're confused. So the woman, as the disciples are coming back and they see this, the woman left her water jar. Why did she come here? For water. She leaves her water jar and she went away into the town and she says to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this man be the Christ? Or can this be the Christ? See a man who told me all that I ever did from a woman who has been divorced five times and is living with another man. This town is a town of probably a couple hundred at the most. People probably know what she did. But she comes to them and she says, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She, she declares, can this be the Christ? You guys all need to come see this person. She, who went to the well in the middle of the day, now goes back into the town where she's been probably ashamed to be around the people and says, you've got to meet this person. Living water welling up into eternal life. They, and so all the people, the people of the town, they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, and this word meanwhile carries with it the weight of they went out of the town and were coming to him. As they are coming to Jesus, meanwhile, the disciples are sitting there, they're urging him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Okay, we're going to pause here a moment. And think, when the, Jesus tells the woman, you should be asking me about living water, how does she respond? She asks him about living water. There's a contrast happening here. Because the disciples hear him say this, and what they should say is, teacher, rabbi, Jesus, what is this food that we know nothing about? Right? Like, that's what they should be asking right now. What do they do instead? They look at each other. They don't even talk to Jesus. They just talk to each other. Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus gives them the same opportunity to learn about what he offers as he gives the woman. And how do they respond? They talk to each other instead of the source of living wire, the source of the bread of life, with, which we're going to see in future passages. Jesus offers them so much when he says that, and their response is, well, did you? Did you? Oh, someone else must have fed him, I guess. They, they don't ask him anything. And so Jesus has to say to them, because they don't bother asking him, where is this food? What is this food we know nothing about? Have you been holding out on us? Even if they just said, have you been holding out on us? That would have been better than just talking to each other. But so finally Jesus says to them, as meanwhile, the people of the town are coming. Meanwhile, the people of the town are coming. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months? Then comes the harvest. Meanwhile, the people of the town are coming. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes. The people of the town coming and see that the fields are white for harvest. Do you see? Do you see? Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. Already the one here, I think, is the woman. She, she has the living water in her. It's welling up to eternal life. And she's going and telling everyone she can. All she knows about Jesus is he says he's the Messiah and he says he offers living water. And she's declaring this to anyone and everyone she sees. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered their labor. At the start of this passage, we see that Jesus was 
on the same area baptizing as John the Baptist, but he was not baptizing. It was his disciples that were entering the labor, not because they were doing the labor, but because they were allowed to enter the labor. And now again, they have an opportunity to to be a part of the labor, and now again, they're entering in at the end of the labor. When Jesus sent them into the town, you just have to wonder, how did they look at all the people they interacted with as they bought food and not say, maybe these people need the Messiah? But they don't. They ignore it. And these people are one people group away from them because they're still of Jewish ancestry, but, but the disciples are focused on let's get food, let's get back to Jesus, and let's get out of Samaria and get back to the Jews so we can keep doing work. Instead of what work could we be doing for God in this place? True worshipers worship in spirit and truth. That means they genuinely worship wherever they are. Whether that's in a place they're comfortable with or whether that's in a place like Samaria where everything is upside down from what they would want to do. And the disciples have missed it. And so Jesus, look, lift your eyes. Do you not see what's coming? He's, he's kind of scolding them, but also kind of challenging them. Like, if, if you're going to be a part of this kingdom work, if you're going to be a part of this labor, this is what it looks like. People coming to me, bringing people to me. A true worshiper in this story is not the disciples. The disciples in John 4, if at the end of today you're like, I'm, I'm a disciple of Jesus, I want to challenge you. To, at the end of today you should say, I hope as a true worshiper I look like a Samaritan woman who has been divorced five times and is now living in an adulterous relationship. But when I hear the message of Jesus, I cannot help but go to places where I was ashamed and declare what he has done for me. I want you to think deeply about this because the disciples have given up their careers. They've left their families. They've given up everything to follow Jesus. And in this story, even though they've given up so much, what the story is trying to say is they've completely missed the point. There are people who need Jesus, and these men do not realize it. And so they are not true worshipers in this story. And instead, it's a woman of Samaria. And many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, which was, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Now, what's really interesting, um, as I've studied this passage, it says, When they came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. When the woman comes and says, come, meet the man who told me all that I ever did, when they first come to him, before they hear his message, they say, hey, can you stay a few days? That's what the language here suggests. They come out to him, they're coming towards him, they get to him, and they say, can you stay two days? We want to hear about this. And what's he going to tell them? He's going to tell them salvation is from the Jews. He's going to tell them that, that, that the, the place to worship is not there or there. He's going to tell them that worshiping is about worshiping in spirit and truth. It's about worshiping the God who is spirit genuinely wherever you are. He's going to tell them all that. And do you know how they respond? Many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, this is the end of the story. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. You can't help when you read this, but think about John 3.16. For God so loved the world. And the very next time after that passage that we see Jesus in action, it's not with the Jews where salvation begins, but it's with another people group, the world, the Savior of the world, not just one people group, everyone. 
And, and we also can't help but notice they don't say this to Jesus. They don't go to Jesus and say, we originally believed because of her, but now we believe because of you. The town where the woman was scorned, where she was probably a pariah, where, where the people probably did not value her, she was marginalized, she was ignored, or she was scoffed at. The town where she felt like it would be better to go get water in the heat of the day, that same town now tells her, it started because of your testimony. But now that we've experienced it, we believe too. Do you see? They're affirming her in this moment. Because what Jesus brings here for them, because she's a true worshiper and because many of them believe, they become true worshipers. They recognize and understand what has happened here and they understand that it started with her, but that is a gift, the living water is a gift that can only come from Jesus. And so church, we come to the end of this story and the question is, is are you a true worshiper of God? And if the place where you are a true worshiper of God is confined to these four walls and to your small group and that's it, I think the answer is no. I think the answer is very clearly no. Because if you do not go out and declare what Jesus has done, this doesn't mean you have to go stand on the street corners and yell at people. In Huntley, that wouldn't be effective. No one walks. Um, but, but, so I, I, it, but the point is, is, do people know about the transformation that God has done in your life? Do you worship God by telling others that genuinely? Do you do that or not? I have a killer example of this, of somebody that I just, I admire so much. Um, this is Mike Turney, um, and this is a picture of him last week at a Teen Challenge banquet in Peoria, Illinois. And Mike was the Teen Challenge pers alumni of the year this year. Um, and what that means is Mike went through a rehab program. Um, I'm going to switch to a picture of his face. Um, I'm just not in this picture, so it's less interesting. I'm not in that picture either, but I took that picture. But... Um, Mike, when he was younger, when he was in it, like 15 to like 21, 22, made some really destructive decisions. He was addicted to things. He was gambling. He, he, he just lived a life that was terrible and awful. His testimony is amazing. And so eventually he realized he needed help. And he went to the, his mom helped him. He went to this program, Teen Challenge. And it was there that he first met Jesus. And there that he understood his need for Jesus. And because of that, when he got out of Teen Challenge, he went around trying to figure out, and he eventually came to our church and said, I want to be a part of what you're doing here. Mike right now is teaching in Club 56. He helps with Roots. He, he helps all over the place at this church. And that's really great. But that's not about being... No, hold on. Don't clap yet. Don't clap yet. There's a... <laughs> I mean, good job clapping. My bad. There's, there's a more important point here. Because what Mike does in this church, cool, great. Um, and I, I really appreciate it because it helps, it makes my job a lot easier. But what Mike does that is so much more important. Mike, from 15 to 22, or 21, whenever, lived in this community. And people in this community knew him. And knew what he was like and knew the way that he lived his life. And now, he still lives in this community. And whenever he sees people who knew who he was before, do you know what he does? He actively points them to Christ. He tells them, you need to come to church. You need to get involved. I need to tell you what God has done for me in my life. And so the way that Mike is a true worshiper is not he's here and he's working all the time in this church, but it's that when, you, when he leaves here, there is so much evidence of the way he lives his life and the way he declares to others what God has done for him. It is genuine and from his heart, and it is so amazing. And so clap at that, I think. Yeah, so... <laughs>
And I'm sorry for telling people not to clap. That's my Ben. But um, the question at the end is, are you a true worshiper of God? And the way you show that is not by church attendance. The way you show that is not by the ritual worship things you do. It's not by when you're at home, you spend time in the Word. Spend time in the Word, please. Don't hear this and say, I, I don't need to spend time in the Word. Spend time in the Word. But it's the overflow of what God is doing in your life and the way you are declaring that outward. And it doesn't have to be everyone you talk to. You walk them through the Romans road and you, you share the gospel with them. But it, but it is, here's who I was, here's who I am. And I'm so thankful for the work God is doing in my life. Just that little bit and telling people what God did for me, he can do for you. Because the woman in this story, she knows so little about Jesus except that he knows a lot about her. In a town where probably a lot of people know about her. But this man offers living water and she says, I want that living water. And she declares it to anyone and everyone because once she has that living water and it wells up to eternal life, right away she immediately knows this cannot be just for me. She doesn't just leave it there. She takes it and declares it to everyone she can. And that is what we are called to do. So my challenge for you is to answer this question. Are you a true worshiper of God? And when you answer it, the way to answer it is not yes, no, all right, move on. The way to answer it is to think. In the different areas of my life, Do I declare what God is doing in my life? Do I put that forward? Because this woman went to the place of most shame for her and declared it. And I'm sure many people in Mike's life have have met him and seen him in low places. But now he declares what God has done. And they're able to see that by not just how he lives, but how he tells them about what God has done in his life. And so, are you a true worshiper of God? And what evidence is there for it? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you so much for all of the ways that that you love us. We thank you so much for in this story, the way that you speak and love and engage with this Samaritan woman, this person that would have been seen as so low among her people, and the way that you lift her up, the way that you offer her the same thing that you offer each and every person, no matter how low or high they are by the standards of the world. And we thank you that you have done that for each of us who calls you Lord. And I pray, Lord, if there are people here who are not true worshipers of you that believe they are, that your spirit would convict them and challenge them to grow into that, to to lean into you, to to learn more about what it means to follow you. I, I pray they would not stand and just say, well, I guess I'm not, the end, but that they would lean into you. And I pray if there are those here today who have never heard this message, I pray they would ask me or ask somebody after this, don't, I, I pray they would not go home and just leave it behind. I I pray that that they would respond to that living water and that eternal life you offer. I pray for small groups this week and as we go out into this week that you would just be um, convicting us and showing us opportunities. Help us lift our eyes to just see opportunities to tell others about what you are doing in our lives. And we pray that we would be a church that does that well and that we would look like the Samaritan woman, not the disciples in this story. And that we would value others the way that you desire us to in the way that your son models for us. We thank you that you're so good and that you're so kind. And we thank you that you are the savior of not just us individually, but of the whole world. It's in your name we pray. Amen.